This week's Institute of Ideas podcast is called After Ferguson, Policing and Race in America and was recorded at the Battle of Ideas 2015. This year's Battle of Ideas is happening on the 22nd and 23rd of October at the Barbican in London. To find out more, go to battleofideas.org.uk. This session is After Ferguson, Policing and Race in America. And just to give people a reminder, you remember about a year ago, there was a shooting in Ferguson, Missouri, which is in the Midwest, where a black teenager was shot dead by a white cop. Um, It appears that Michael Brown reached into the officer's car, but the truth of the matter is, you know, we'll never really know what happened. But the interesting thing is the response to that, because what started off as quite peaceful protests against that shooting then escalated into rioting and, um, you know, and, and there was a lot of violence. But it has to be recognised, a lot of the, uh, you know, this followed on from the reaction of the Ferguson police force to the peaceful protests. Um, and many of you would have seen this on TV where there were tanks, rubber, rubber bullets and tear gas were used against protesters. And this is all, you may wonder, well, how come they had that in Ferguson, which is in the Midwest? And this is all equipment that was given to the states by the federal government uh, after 9-11, you know, presumably for uh, post-terrorism, you know, terrorism-suspected events. So uh, a lot of people have commented on the complete overreaction by the police, which some people have seen as a sign of strength, but other people have seen as a sign of weakness, because normally in a situation like this, there are various strategies that the the, the local police do to, you know, kind of, um, I guess, to dissipate uh, people's anger. And the interesting thing about this is this is not the first black man to have been shot in the United States. Uh, But the interesting thing is it created not just a protest in Ferguson, but protests across the United States and internationally. And the whole thing went viral by the internet. And there was a huge uh, um, reaction against what had had happened. But just to look a little bit uh, on the other side, later on that year, in 2004... There was a shooting of two minority cops, not white cops, minority cops in New York by an African-American male who claimed he was shooting them out of retribution for the shootings of the many black, black men in the United States. And these were two, one of these, uh, one of these police officers was a Chinese-American, one of them was a Latino-American, and the response not just from the New York Police Department, but the police department nationally and in Canada, was there was a national mobilisation for the funeral. And people came from across the United States, and not, not just junior police officers, but senior police officers, and from Canada. And there was a real public showing of uh, support for these police officers at the two, at the two funerals. And the, the police officers that spoke complained about the fact that they felt that everything was against them. They were trying to police what they saw as high crime areas. They were trying to do their job and and people were coming at them from every side. People were coming at them from the communities and people were also coming back at them from from, what you might refer to as the liberal elite, 
So, for example, you will all remember that after the shooting of Trayvon Martin by actually a Latino citizen in Florida, the president, Barack Obama, went onto TV and said, if I had a son, he could have looked like Trayvon Martin. And the mayor of New York, the white mayor of uh, uh, New York, Mayor de Blasio, went onto the TV and said he has a son who is of mixed parentage because de Blasio's wife is black. And um, he went on TV and said that he'd counseled his son on how to respond if he was stopped by the New York Police Department. So there's a real reaction by the police officers who, fi- who are you know, very much uh, feeling that they're not supported from any quarters. And I think that what's going on here is a complete breakdown of trust between both the, um, you know, both the communities in the United States and from ordinary citizens and from, um, from the other side, from the police department. And what we want to look at in this session is what's actually going on and really interrogate what's going on. And Because clearly this is not the 1960s. Ferguson is not a Jim Crow state. Uh, but something, something has changed, but it's almost like we still have that legacy of racism in the United States, despite the fact that most Americans across the United States, not just in the, uh, in the large cities, um, you know, would not describe themselves as racist. And that, you know, that common everyday prejudice and the, um, you know, the institutions of the state do not respond in the same way that they, they used to do. So what we're trying to look at is, is, you know, what are the things that are continuous, but what are the things that have changed, and what's really going on in, in relation to race in the United States? So I have three speakers today, which I'm going to announce to you. So I'm going to introduce them in the order in which they will speak. First, on my far left, is Dr. James Campbell, who's a lecturer in American history at the University of Leicester, and he's author of Crime and Punishment in African American History. Next to speak will be Kunli Olulodi, who is the director of Voice for Change England and the creative director of Rebot Productions. And then finally, we have Dr. Kevin Yule, who's a senior lecturer in intellectual history of the U.S. at the University of Sunderland and has written extensively on the civil rights movement. And particularly, many of you will have seen his book on um, the role of um, Nixon in relation to developing affirmative action, which here we call positive discrimination policies in the United States to try and take the fuel out of the civil rights movement. So if you could all join me in welcoming the speakers, and then we'll make a start. Uh, thank you, Jean, and thank you to everyone for, for coming um, this morning. Um, good morning to you. Um, I think I've been asked to speak first, um, partly because I'm going to be talking um, about the past as much as the present, um, providing some historical context um, for, for, this, for this wider debate. In the, the short time I have, I'm very conscious of the, the uh, strict time limits we're going to be adhering to here, um, I want to make some comments about how history can help us to understand not only the events that have happened in, in Ferguson and their, and their various consequences, um, but also broader issues about violence, uh, racism and excessive policing in modern American criminal justice and the penal system. Um, these include stark racial discrepancies in stop and search, rates of arrest, 
um, prosecutorial decision-making and imprisonment that contributes to, the, to the, the phenomenon known as mass incarceration, which I think is a, a key part of the wider context here. And in fact, I think one of the things that has happened in the US since the shooting in Ferguson um, last year is that a debate that's been going on for a few years about um, the role of race in the American prison system and possible ways that might be reformed has expanded to incorporate discussions of race um, and policing as well. So that link is, is very, well, very well established. In discussing all of these issues, um, a variety of commentators, activists, scholars over the past year have, have turned frequently to historical um, parallels, um, not only to try and interpret recent events, but also to, I think, define the terms of the debate. And that's one of the, one of the key roles that history has played. And so I want to try and suggest four ways in which history has been important to this um, debate. And again, in the interest of time, I'll, I'll sketch these out fairly, fairly briefly. Point number one. Um, history demonstrates very clearly that the events of the past year uh, are far from exceptional. While we might think of American law enforcement in terms of equal justice and the rule of law, there is a long um, alternative history um, in which police violence and racial discrimination are very um, tightly connected in the administration um, of American justice. There's a deep and persistent connection between race, violence and law and you could almost argue that's hardwired into American law enforcement. It goes back all the way to the, to the colonial period and you can at least trace it um, that, far, that far back and it's proved very, um, very adaptable to changing political, socio-economic and cultural conditions ever since. Uh, put another way, the current situation of police violence and mass incarceration can and has been interpreted as a new iteration of past systems of racial oppression and social control. And we can look at um, the institution of slavery, um, convict leasing, lynching, peonage, um, segregation laws, racially segregated ghettos, all as precursors to this. Now, none of this is to say that modern criminal justice is the equivalent of slavery, but rather it's to suggest that American law enforcement has always been concerned with racial control, at least as much as it has been concerned with the pursuit of justice. Those two things have gone hand in hand historically. Point number two. This history I've just sketched out shapes not only the enforcement of criminal law in the present, but equally important, it shapes police-community relations and the way that people interpret the actions of the police and other criminal justice actors. Um, the description for this session in the programme refers to a breakdown of trust between law enforcement and the public, but in many communities that trust has never existed. And Ferguson, and we don't need to look beyond Ferguson for, for an example um, of that. It has a very powerful local history of racial discrimination in law, going back to a very famous Supreme Court case in the 1850s through major race riots in the early 20th century and more recent con um, conditions of racial discrimination um, in all areas of public policy, including housing, uh, education and, and policing. I think these things very much are, are linked. Lots of them have been documented extensively in the various reports that have come out in the aftermath um, of, of Ferguson and which are well worth taking, um, taking a look at. So if we want to know why this case has sparked such a virulent response, I think to understand the local community of Ferguson and others like it, we need to look at that aspect of, of history as well. Um, a stark divide between the way black and white Americans view law enforcement. Uh, and that divide has been highlighted by numerous commissions of inquiry. The, the Kerner Commission in the late 1960s most notably spoke about two worlds of criminal justice, one black and one white, that were almost entirely distinct from each other. And um, there's something we can perhaps discuss later as to how far 
that has changed in the intervening years. Uh, point number three. Um, I think in looking at this issue as a whole, we need to grapple with the civil rights movement of the 50s and 60s and its legacy um, and the way we interpret that, that movement. It has such a prominent place in public views of um, black history and it is so influential to the national dialogue about race in, in the US. Typically viewed um, as um, a major progressive turning point in American history, but that tells only a part of the story, and in regard to the law enforcement, it's a small and unrepresentative part. Um, the civil rights movement, for all that it achieved, did not bring about significant progressive change to American policing, and if anything, it actually did, did the opposite. Um, law enforcement was involved very heavily in protecting and defending the status quo, not just at the local level with some of the famous um, incidents involving police forces in cities like Birmingham and Selma, but at the federal level as well, the FBI being deployed in a variety of ways to target some of the most uh, um, so-called radical groups of the 60s, which called for the most extensive police reforms. Saw their leaders um, extensively jailed uh, and shot by, by the FBI. Also worth pointing out that police and criminal justice reforms were not a primary goal of at least the mainstream civil rights movement. There are plenty of examples in black history where they have been, um, and violent and discriminatory policing has often been a catalyst for civil rights um, activism. But there's certainly no automatic connection between civil rights legislation of the type that was passed in the 60s and law enforcement change. And on the contrary, many people would argue there was a, a backlash um, led by the criminal justice system against the civil rights achievements um, of the 60s um, that continues today, involving mass incarceration and other aspects um, as well. Despite the end of segregation, so-called end of segregation in that period, relatively little change in the um, demographic makeup, the racial makeup of American police forces um, following the 1960s. Um, as well, which is also a point we might come back to. And again, very much evident in Ferguson, where the uh, local population is 67% African-American, but the local police force, um, 83% white. Um, and again, we can talk later about the reasons for that. And one final point, which I think I just about have uh, time for. African-American history shows that changing law enforcement practices and culture is, is difficult. Um, there have been a whole slew of reports published by the Department of Justice um, and other um, groups over the past year into the events in Ferguson. They echo a lot of the language used in reports into similar um, tragedies, race riots uh, and so forth, dating back 100 years. Um, but as the historian uh, Khalil Mohammed has pointed out, most of those reports have done little more than sit and gather dust. They were ignored even by city governments that often, often commissioned them. This meant that discrimination and violence um, didn't only persist in American law enforcement, but it also meant that some of the derogatory beliefs about inherent black criminality that those reports challenged actually went unchallenged. Those cultural beliefs, in fact, became so pervasive that even many civil rights groups became very wary of engaging with issues of black criminality. It was too much of a hot topic to touch. They feared it might compromise some of their other, um, their other goals, their other um, priorities. And with that, I will stop. Bunny. In the summer of 2011, I had the privilege in London of hosting uh, Tommy Smith, the 1968 um, athlete who did the protests uh, from the Olympic podium. Uh, Tommy's now, at that time, his late 60s, but in tow he brought with him uh, 14 young athletes from Oakland, California, 
Uh, if you think back to the summer of, uh, uh, I think it was 2011, the thing that happened around about August time, within days of them arriving in London, was a riot uh, and the scene of riots across uh, the UK. Um, so I sat in a restaurant with uh, a number of these young ladies and I asked them what they thought about what was going on uh, in Britain. And they looked at the screens of Croydon burning. They looked at the scenes of what was happening uh, across London. Uh, and they were surprised that it was happening in London. But as far as they were concerned, this was a normal state of affairs stateside. And they didn't find it uh, particularly remarkable. But I was kind of struck by this. So I thought, I said to them, you know, wouldn't your parents be concerned? You're far away from home. And they're seeing these scenes on their tellies being flashed back. Um, they said, no. These type of things uh, happen all the time where we are, and it just blows over. And I think that that um, response of kind of normalization in, in recognition of the state of affairs in the US um, really kind of struck me that to be normalized to that uh, degree amongst 14-year-olds was um, uh, really sad, but also an indication of, I think, the sense of um, uh, dislocation within America uh, in many of its um, uh, both cities and provincial regions. The build-up to Ferguson, let's not forget, um, apart from Michael Brown, uh, we also have the incidents of Eric Garner strangled on video. We also have um, Tamla Rice, 12 years old, and shot. I think that the notion of black men and boys who've lost their hands, at, uh, lost their lives at the hands of the police, is, is something that, um, as has been indicated by the previous speaker, has a long history in America. But I think we have to be able to dig uh, deeper to determine what it is that's distinct about Ferguson that enabled this particular incident to become uh, an international phenomenon. And I think that um, in order to understand that, we need to consider the question of the American economy. We have to consider the question of the role of the police and the issues around uh, both what's referred to as social cohesion, but also the question of engagement, which seems to have crumbled um, over a number of years and more recently has intensified uh, through the economic downturn. Um, in terms of the... Uh, historical context, I think it's also interesting to look at the response, uh, the distinction between the last major and huge riot in America, uh, Los Angeles in 1992, and the response uh, to Ferguson uh, over the uh, last year or so. Um, because what in intrigued me when um, Jean asked me to come onto this panel was to actually look at um, what happened uh, straight after the LA riots of 92, and to contrast that with what's actually happened in Ferguson since. Um, the LA riots, or the Rodney King riots, as they were referred to, um, like many of the incidents that I'm sure some of you are familiar with in terms of YouTube uh, and the incidents that you've seen on your computers that have been referred to in the press, was a visual um, incident. Uh, and it was a visual impact of Rodney King being beaten by police in the streets of L.A. Uh, the police then 
in what most people thought was an open and shut case in terms of them being prosecuted didn't happen and led to those riots. You can't compare the scale in terms of Ferguson because it's much greater. In fact, 53 people died, for those of you that probably don't remember uh, back that far. Um, and in terms of the damage to the city, it was around about a billion dollars. So the scale is different. But in terms of the outcome, first of all, there was an increase in the hiring of black police officers. The, the first response is we need better representation of black officers within the police. The second response, uh, a loss of uh, support for the mayor, um, in particular, an analysis of the general politics uh, and economic atmosphere that contributed to the riots. There was also a very famous um, uh, report uh, based around the Webster Commission, which looked at, um, again, the reasons why um, the riots had occurred. Then the question of uh, the economy also. It was linked to the economic deterioration of South Central, uh, and in particular, the declining living conditions of the residents. In fact, um, Democratic presidential candidate at that time, Bill Clinton, argued that the violence resulted from the breakdown of economic opportunities and the social institutions uh, in the inner cities. He also berated both the Democratic Party and the Republican parties for failing to, uh, to address urban issues. Then, at the, the, the kicker, basically, uh, the officers, the four officers involved in the LAPD attack on Rodney King uh, were either fired or they left. And so that brought things to uh, a close. But um, the movement of more black uh, junior officers into uh, senior positions within the police force was also a key outcome. In terms of uh, the patterns in Ferguson, uh, and I looked at the, uh, what was going on a year after the actual um, riots, again, the first thing was a restructuring of the councillors. Um, only one black councillor in Ferguson uh, out of five. There was a, a change in the makeup of the councillors. Similarly, Eric Holder, uh, Obama's outgoing Attorney General, again, another a report, delivered a scathing denunciation of the police department in Ferguson um, as a revenue-generating operation that had repeatedly flouted the constitutional rights of the predominantly black population. By that, he meant that one of the major functions of the police force had been the collection of fines. The uh, cuts in funding of uh, policing had led to targets being set in relation to the collection of fines. So you can imagine a combustible mix of uh, pressure to actually collect more money, but also to carry out policing duties, um, was a huge factor uh, there in terms of the economic recession and how that had hit the public sector. Um, and then the decision um, not to bring criminal charges um, against the um, police officers, obviously, similarly, um, with Los Angeles was another factor which I think was decisive in terms of creating um, this uh, volatile atmosphere. And then uh, finally, again, black officers uh, being moved from junior positions into senior positions, another outcome. Um, I've got a uh, very short time available, but just to make one final point, and, I, and it goes back to the points uh, made by James, the role of uh, civil rights movement. I think it's also particularly important 
that we note that in both the cases of Los Angeles and Ferguson, the role of the civil rights movement has been to act as both the engine for protest and the pacifier of anger in both instances. In 1992, it was Jesse Jackson. Uh, in uh, 2014-15, it's been Al Sharpton. And it's interesting to know Al Sharpton's role, both in making sure that he's being at the point where the families, when they were grieving, he appears on the scene. And has been described eloquently as the race pimp who was directly responsible for the two police officers that James referred to in terms of the shooting. I'll leave it there. All right, thank you, Kunle. I'm going to make two points. First of all, I think we need to look at the changed role of policing and the way that the police deal with situations. What's changed about that? And second, I think it's worth looking at the changes in the way race is understood and dealt with in the United States. So first of all, in terms of police, uh, the point that James and Conley have made is, is absolutely correct. This isn't the, the most recent events are not so much exceptional as much more visible. There's a trend in, in justification. Uh, for instance, in the 1960s, there, were far, there, there was a higher rate of police shootings of civilians and citizens. Uh, and that changed in the 1970s when the, the trend in justification from fleeing felon uh, changed to defensive life. So police were only able to take a life if it was in, in order to defend another life, including their own. And that significantly lowered the rate of police killings in the 1970s. Second interesting point is it's not just African Americans who are shot. Uh, 547 people were killed by the police in the first six months of 2015. Of those, 49.7 were white, 28.3% were black. And that compares to, that's double their rate of, their, of the population but is lower and significantly lower than, for instance, the 43.5% of the prison population uh, who is African-American in the United States. But there are changes worth noting. Uh, I think there is that con continuity, but there are also changes worth noting. I think it's the lockdown mentality. What I think of as the lockdown mentality has really invaded the United States, uh, and, and it's led to over-policing on almost every level. So from 1980 to 2008, James has said this, I won't go through it, but to, you know, the uh, prison population, the number of people incarcerated quadrupled from half a million to 2.3 million people. And if we look at the various different court processes, people, um, uh, there are 3.2% of the population is under some sort of correctional control. That's an astounding amount in such a large country. So you have this over-policing that's, that's happening. Uh, the police increasingly behave as if they're in a foreign country, one they would like to get out of soon because it's dangerous. And Albuquerque is a very interesting example. Albuquerque, there have been 28 police deaths. It's, quite a, it's not a big place. And there have been 28 po police shootings um, over less, in the spate of less than a year. Um, not so much African-Americans because there's a very low African-American population there, but many mentally ill people. And this, this tends to be a big problem, that, that rather than actually deal with mentally ill people, uh, there tends to be a shoot first and ensure that I'm safe kind of mentality in the United States these days. An example of that is, for instance, Los Angeles Unified School District 
Uh, not only has a police force of its own, but receives military-grade weapons through the Federal Departments of Defense, this is the thing you were talking about, Gene, uh, 1033 program, whereby uh, munitions are, are transferred over to the police. And at least five school districts in Texas have been outwitted, outfitted with materials through the program, including one with a SWAT team. A school with a SWAT team is a fairly ridiculous situation, um, particularly given how safe U.S. schools are. We hear about these school shootings, but if you took the uh, school population and made it into a country of about 60 million, it would be the safest country in existence of its size and uh, topped only by Iceland, which, which only has a population of 300,000, in terms of the murder rate, the homicide rate in schools. So schools are incredibly safe places, yet they have metal detector, armed police, and even uh, a SWAT team in Texas. And this lockdown mentality creates, as I say, this over-policing, though it seldom leads to violence. So there are fewer killings of, of police and by police of civilians in the past, but they're much more visible. They're now on Vines, they're now on YouTube. Rodney King was, of course, the first sort of filmed incident was, that was seen very popularly and uh, screened, and that seems to have made a difference. So the second point, race. I think the change that's happened in the United States, and this is going to relate more to what James was talking about, it's, it's worth looking at. Um, there's a depressing continuity in some levels between the past and the present. As an Economist article noted in 2013, uh, median household wealth for what American white families was $110,500, whereas for blacks it was $6,314. And uh, a separate study by the Urban Institutes found that between 2004 and 2010, African Americans lost 23% of their average wealth, while whites lost 1%. Uh, though intermarriage rates have remained, um, have risen since 1980, they remain shockingly low in comparison, for instance, if you look at London. Um, the intermarriage rate is very, very low in the United States compared to that. Blacks continue to be at the bottom of U.S. society, but what's changed is that there's no sense from anyone that the racial divide can be or, or even should be bridged. The problem in the past is that African Americans were not seen as individuals in a very individualistic society. And now what you have, rather than African Americans being, you know, with the project, the Civil Rights Project in the 1960s, African Americans being sort of raised into becoming individuals, now you have increasingly more and more groups uh, being seen as sort of masses uh, rather than individuals. So many many whites, particularly those who are not aware of their whiteness or, you know, are, are lower class whites, uh, are, are often sort of um, uh, lumped into this, this sort of mass, this fear of the mass seems to be coming, not affecting just blacks um, as, uh, as whites as well. And so you, you had in the 1960s a sort, of, sort of monolithic whiteness that was given all sorts of positive qualities. Um, you know, that, that basically there was a whiteness that, that uh, people thought was the mainstream, that, that was something that African Americans aspired to be integrated into, and that's what doesn't seem to exist anymore. It's almost like the, the, that, that sort of group of people that all called themselves white now long, no longer relate to themselves as white. Um, so it's, it's uh, an interesting development that way. And so whites are no longer seen as a sort of paragon of American society, there's no more mainstream for which anybody can be related to. 
And uh, this is a problem in some ways for African Americans because there's, there's the project of integration is stalled. There's nothing to be integrated into. There's no point in being integrated into another group that is simply another ethnic group. So you have um, a stall in the, in the pro- project of integration. And the dream that Martin Luther King had has really been shelved. And I think that's what's happened despite the fact that we now have a black president, uh, there are many things that are less hopeful than they were in the 1960s in the United States. Thank you, Kevin. Okay, well, I'm going to come straight out to the audience. Can I refer to the uh, economic background to some of this stuff? And certainly, um, policing has been used to control uh, greater unemployment after um, deindustrialization, particularly in the Midwest. I'm just wondering to what extent um, thinking of these kind of militarized policing issues in terms of race obscures that economic background and whether figures like Al Sharpton are part of that process. Just a really a quick question. Are we uh, too often talking about race when we should be talking about class and poverty, kind of interlinks with what we just said. Because it seems to me that um, if it's the case that African Americans are disproportionately working class and poor, then the adversities they experience shouldn't be compared to all classes of white. Just a quick point, really. I have a problem usually with these discussions because I think we don't quite get the fact that race is a, is a construct. It's a complete social construct. It has no basis in science. The people that invented it ramped it up. They saw people looking different and they ascribed different races to different people. It makes absolutely no sense. The problem I have with it is that we continue to speak about it as if it's a real thing. And by speaking about it as if it's a real thing, we then encourage people to believe that in actual fact having a race means you have certain characteristics and this is complete nonsense right so until we actually start to address that I as a premise and reinforce that and teach that to people to our children we will continue to suffer from this from this idiocy for for example why and what earthly reason why is Barack Obama black and not white why who made that decision hmm? what does it mean it's complete nonsense so and then we get ourselves into these things that, and it, really if we believe these, these crazy things there's no wonder that people go and do crazy things and justify doing crazy things by believing these things I just had a question as to what the panel thinks the impact of having a black president, although whether he may or may not be black, has had on race relations in America. Um, I just wanted to hear a bit more about the, the issue of the mass incarceration, which I think is a real issue in the US. I did live in New York for six years, and I think it, it really was an issue in the African-American and Latino community because of lack of positive male role models. And then also about the... Um, Kunle talked about the lack of legal recourse against police brutality in terms of the grand juries and actually not going to trial, and I think that was a real issue as well in terms of fueling the reactions. 
I was very much struck by uh, Kevin's closing remarks where he said that um, he saw no real sense of uh, that the racial divide can be bridged. And it's really interesting and very uh, disheartening in many ways because I spend time in a few different places. Partly I live in Nashville, in East Nashville, uh, and partly in New York and partly in, in London. And it's uh, remarkable to me in London, everyone will be familiar in London, you know, uh, my friends who've got kids of mixed race now, their, their kids actually say to us, was it really like that 30 years ago? And you think, are you joking? Actually, like how racism used to be in Britain and, and how it is, well, in London now, very, very different. Um, and yet, in America, the land of the American dream, where everything seems possible and perhaps the civil rights was much stronger, um, when I drive with my son around East Nashville, he's like, oh, we're in a poor area now, Dad, aren't we? And the reason he knows that is because there's a lot of black people there. Uh, and I, I guess I, my, my question is, to, to Kevin, but to all of you really, is that, isn't that a very pessimistic sense? If there's no sense that this uh, racial divide can be bridged, what is the solution? I certainly think we all suffer from a similar problem. Part of what this gentleman's been talking about, but in, maybe in a different way, the gentleman at the front, which is that identity politics has become a real curse. Because what, one of the other things about what the defeat of the left and the project to change the world and to overthrow racism was uh, this, this elevation of the idea of identity, that somehow my particularity as being an Irish Jewish gay guy is so different to your particularity about being an African-American woman that we can't have any shared universal uh, 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 sense of purpose together. And actually, whenever I've been at a debate or a discussion in America, if you get up and talk about things about racism, it's a very, very hostile environment. It's very, it's very nerve-wracking if you get up, because you're like, who are you, as a white person, to be saying anything? Whereas really, the best thing about the, the part, many parts of the civil rights movement, perhaps, was that black and white people, men and women, all thought they could have a common pur purpose to, to overthrow some of those things. So my question is, should it really be a pessimistic doom that, you know, there isn't a bridge to overcome this. Is there a way to throw up a sense of common purpose together that can overcome some of these things? Because when I see all those videos on YouTube everywhere of just countless white cops bashing up black people, it's just so disheartening. Uh, it's out of context sometimes, but it's so disheartening. You just think, what can we actually do? Thank you. I'm going to bring the panel in now, but I will come back out to the audience. So uh, the panel, um, who wants to go first? Kunli, you want to go first? Well, I think that the, the question of uh, the nature of uh, civil rights and its demise is something that's quite important. Um, uh, had I had more time, G, um, I would have actually gone into it in a bit more detail. Um, and it's interesting, just to um, uh, pick up on a quote uh, from Al Sharpton at Michael Brown's uh, funeral. Um, we have to clean up our community so we can clean up the United States of America. We have to do this because nobody is going to help us if we don't help ourselves. Thus, we must quickly dispense with our penchant for ghetto pity parties. So the role of um, Sharpton is both to actually empathize uh, in terms of the victims of violence, but also then to take it down a road of reconciliation, ultimately, um, with the establishment. Um, and what's been interesting for me has been uh, the fact that in many respects, um, the civil rights movement uh, in, in the form of Sharpton has more influence now within the establishment than it's ever had. But actually, its influence on the ground 
is very much compromised by the emergence of a new layer of uh, black activists who are not schooled in the civil rights movement, um, but certainly uh, see a problem is there, but are also quite sure how to address it in terms of a political form. And so we have things like um, you know, uh, the groups that have made it very clear that the issue is not simply about uh, changing um, the uh, kind of political makeup of American society as it would have been in the past, but uh, is a plea that black lives matter. Now, in terms of a, uh, being a black person myself, I understand that immediate um, desire to try and overcome a horrific incident and to actually make sense of it and also to channel that energy into something positive. But with no structures in place, um, the reference points that we're talking about um, you know, are melting away. And the civil rights movement, too, is beginning to feel the impact of that um, in terms of a, a lack of control. So while Sharpton can do you know, a lot of work with McDonald's uh, and uh, various hedge fund companies, in fact, the civil rights movement has been uh, quite uh, good uh, uh, for Sharpton personally. He's a millionaire. He's the person that's on the scene at every incident. But it's not actually, as, as has been indicated by previous speakers and people in the audience, brought anything in terms of any permanent solutions or even significant changes to the conditions of black people in the United States. And so the question that uh, was posed in relation to um, race as a social construct, my friend, I take that as a given. But the nature of society is, and it is a social phenomenon, is that race exists. And so the idea that we could go from here and argue that, well, actually, it's just a, a, an abstract concept, you know, you're not going to get very far. <laughs> At the end of the day, people are getting killed. At the end of the day, there is a nervousness about discussing even race amongst white people in society. And at the same time, there is the organizing principle of black politics isn't there. So, I mean, I'd be interested to hear other people's views on this, but I do think the question of um, class um, is the one that needs to be addressed. But how you address it and the form that you address it, I think it's still to be worked through. Thank you, Kunle. Kevin, let's go next. I think in terms of race, is race being talked about inappropriately uh, or is race a construct? In one sense, yes, of course it is. There's no scholarship that shows that there are biological differences, no useful scholarship that shows there are biological differences that are significant uh, between various different races or, and or ethnic groups. Um, I agree with you on that level. And in a sense, I agree with you, even in this country, I think, I think you know, talking about race is, is, uh, is different than talking about it in the United States. And I would argue, in fact, that the real division in this country is actually class rather than race. There's much more integration in, in for instance, London. Um, if you look at, at figures, um, you look and, and say intermarriage rates... If you are a black male in London, your chances of marrying a white woman are better than 50%. Whereas the equivalent in the United States, if you're a black male, your chances of marrying a woman, a, a white woman, are tw is 12%. And there's a much higher population, of course, over there. Um, your chances of marrying a white male, if you're a black female in the United States, are 4%, which is a ridiculously low figure. So 
we're talking about two different places. There's a real difference. In the UK, I always think it's class, and I come at you as a stranger, um, and I notice this, that you can tell basically what somebody's parents did for a living by listening to them speak for about a paragraph. And that is the uncomfortable reality underneath things in this country. If you see um, a black guy walking down the street, you might think, okay, whatever. And then if he comes out with a Scouts accent, then you go, ah, I know exactly uh, which football team, etc. You know, you know, you, you make up your mind about. Whereas I think in the United States, race is a very real phenomenon. I think it's it's a cultural reality. It's not a, a physical reality, but it's been constructed into a cultural reality. And it effectively, you know, race racism, if you like, means judging, uh, making an assumption about somebody because of the color of their skin. That's that's it's it's as simple as that. And um, I think that happens in the United States, even from people who would count themselves as anti-racist, etc. And I think if you look at, there are real different, you know, I, I went through the wealth differences. You can look at SAT scores and you can say there are different SAT scores amongst African Americans of all income levels uh, than there are of whites at all income levels. And I don't think that's biological, but it needs to be talked about, it needs to be discussed, and it needs to be um, explained in many different ways. It is still a problem in the United States. Uh, interesting question, what's Barack Obama's significance in relation to race? I've just had a, my, one of my PhD students just, just did that PhD, so I can talk to you at length about it uh, if, if you want to. Uh, but I think it's, it's in some ways, it's, he, he was elected on a great uh, wave of hope, that people thought, we can elect a black president, this is going to allay some of the racial history of our past. My act of, of a, as a white person voting for a black president is, is sort of liberating. I feel like I, I'm escaping uh, the roots to my past. And yet, of course, it still remains. It, it was a great moment of hope in 2008, and I think uh, but blackness still remains. As I say, I think whiteness is falling to bits in some ways. There's not that sort, same sort of uh, white solidarity that you might have seen in the past, and that's changing. Am I being pessimistic? I'm in favor of integration as much as possible, so I'm not pessimistic personally. Am I pessimistic about the prospects in the immediate future? Yes, probably, because I don't think integration is on the cards. There's very, very few people talking about it. Um, the last sort of cultural mention I can remember about it is fear of a brown planet. Who was that by? And, and Public enemy. Public enemy, thank you. Um, and um, but it, it doesn't have any cultural resonance. Nobody's actually arguing for it now. So I think uh, that's the, the real problem. Um, I think you, you can look at American history and you can say there are two sort of phases that, that go back and forth. And one is resolving the racial issue, which you can look at the 1960s and maybe the Reconstruction period and say there were people there actually attempting to resolve the racial issue. And then there was managing the racial issue, and I think we're in a phase of managing the racial issue. It's like keeping it, uh, a lid on it as much as possible, and that's what race relations, really, the whole development of race relations was all about. James. Yeah, thank you. Um, I'll make a couple of brief comments on some of the questions that have already been addressed, and then I'll try to come to um, some of the uh, other, other questions that were asked. Um, it seems a while ago now that they were asked. Um, but anyway, let me... Uh, um, first of all, on this issue of race as a social construct, um, I've got nothing to disagree with there. I think one of, the, uh, one of the reasons this topic is so important is because that, that process of construction has happened so much through criminal justice processes and has been perpetuated by it. Race has been constructed through 
um, differential law and enforcement policies towards black and white communities. And that's perhaps particularly notable with the treatment of um, white immigrant communities in the early 20th century. Um, and a whole different um, swathe of, I suppose, not only law enforcement, but also wider social policies that facilitated uh, the assimilation of white immigrant communities whilst um, blocking similar paths for, for African Americans, particularly those um, migrating to, to northern cities um, in that period. On the, uh, the, the, the issue, equally briefly, on the issue of uh, pessimism versus optimism, um, looking for sort of optimistic signs, um, there have been some very clear reform proposals made about how American policing can change. A number of those have been taken up by state governments over the past year. It's far too early to tell um, what impact, if any, um, they, they will have. Um, but I think a lot of those proposals have actually got quite um, widespread support across a number of different constituencies, including within the police um, themselves in, in many cases. Um, I think uh, body cameras have got an awful, an awful lot of coverage and uh, um, they, they've been adopted in many ways. Um, new moves towards improved um, citizen oversight um, mechanisms um, have also been um, fairly widely adopted. So there is, <clears throat> it will be interesting to see how that plays out over the coming years, whether that really does make a, di- a difference to anything and how, uh, how the police go about their jobs in, in practice. <clears throat> Coming to some of the other issues um, that were raised, uh, I think the first question specifically... Just refer- take up one, yeah. Oh, OK. Uh, oh, so much to choose from. Uh, the, f- <laughs> the first question referred to deindustrialization um, specifically. Um, policing certainly, I think, has, uh, has often played a role in labour control, and this perhaps does relate to, to class issues um, as well. That's seen very clearly in the era of um, convict leasing, um, in the aftermath of, of the American Civil War, the abolition of slavery... Um, a system whereby um, huge numbers of convicts were hired out, leased out by the state to work for private corporations and played a, a critical role um, in the, the, the growth of the southern economy in the late 19th and early 20th century. This economic context is, is equally critical now. The, um, Conlay spoke about the importance of um, revenue raising um, for the police and municipal courts in Ferguson. That's, that can only really, really be understood in the wider context of cuts to police budgets, the, the general shrinking of, of, of the state in, in the US, um, and a sort of an outsourcing of, of the funding of, of, uh, um, of these institutions of criminal justice. Um, likewise, the, the, the current economic situation has arguably provided some opportunities for change as well, certainly in terms of mass incarceration. Um, imprisoning the number of people that, that the United States does is very, very expensive. And there has been a suggestion that some of the um, sort of uh, movement against mass incarceration over recent years has, has, has got somewhere with, with politicians because they see, it, they see cutting prison numbers as one way to adjust, um, address um, budget deficits as well. So again, this wider economic situation affects us in lots of, uh, lots of different ways. I'll, I'll stop there. Okay, thank you. I want to come back out to the audience. And one of the things I think it will be helpful to look at is, you know, this apparent dichotomy. On the one hand, there is no real cultural affirmation for racism um, in the United States. Yet at the same time, there is this still this, you know, cultural divide. And the United States is still seen as a very violent 
um, uh, you know, uh, society. And, um, and I think it is still seen very much as a, a white on black thing. But then if you look at one of the inner city areas, for example, Washington, D.C., the majority of the citizens that actually live in, um, in, in the city area are black. And the majority of the police are black. And it has one of the most violent um, police forces in the country targeted against black people. Um, you know, similarly, the recent shooting in, um, not shooting, but the death in custody in Philadelphia, um, where something, we're not quite sure what happened in the back of the police van, um, and a man died from, from, a black man died from spinal injuries. The six officers that were arrested, um, they, were, they were a mixture in terms of their, uh, of their background, and one, in fact, was, was a black woman. So clearly, you, you know, um, there is that legacy of racism, but it's, it's almost like we, sometimes we, because we see everything through a prism of race, we can't really, you know, find our way in terms of the, um, you know, the different specificities. So now I have a good show of hands, so we need to move very quickly with the microphones. Cunley for, uh, earlier said um, contrasted um, Los Angeles with Ferguson, 92, more, more recent times, and you seem to say um, a lot more came as a result of the LA riots in terms of, I think, that 32 people were shot. It cost a billion pounds worth of dollar, billion pounds worth of damage. Are you saying that Ferguson didn't go far enough and they need to write again and get it right next time, <laughs> go a bit further? You might want to turn the cameras off for your response to that. <laughs> um, I'll be interested also to know what the panel think are solutions to this. Sometimes I sit and think we can debate and debate, but what, what's the way forward? And I think also in the discussion is the whole look at the gun crime issue in America, because it's just ridiculous and we don't really get it in here, and it's very clear that you know there's not going to be any sort of abolition of guns or in America anytime soon, because the majority seem to want them and and I, just, I don't know, I just wonder what people are thinking that needs to be done. For example, I think we need to um, have more people, more black people involved in council, you know, local councils, local police forces, get on commissions, get on the rifle association body and, and, and get in positions of influence because the cops aren't going to stop shooting any time soon with, without that. Kunli's not afraid to say anything he thinks on camera. Um, the lady at the front. Yeah, I just wanted to raise the point of um, class again. Um, it was raised about the class system in the UK, and I couldn't agree with you more that it, of the issue that it is. But I think it's, not, uh, it's very important not to forget that it is actually a major, if unspoken, issue in the US. Um, and what it is a really important aspect when considering um, the status of black people in America. And I think it cannot be separated um, from the topic when discussing it, because essentially the class inequality seen in the US are just another embodiment of um, racial inequality and the lack of opportunities for black um, people in education and employment and the discrimination that they still face is just another embodiment of that. And I think until we see an actual real change and development in the massive class inequalities, are we really seeing any improvement from the, from the civil rights movement, the problems that we saw in the 50s and 60s? I just um, 
wanted to challenge a little bit this concept of, especially in this country, as an American living here for 25 years, uh, that it's all about class and not race in this country. This week we just had the release of the statistics, the overwhelming majority of black people being tasered by the police, and the really weaselly response of the police authority to why that is. Also, we just saw recently the sort of suspended sentence of the white city guy who defrauded the, tra the transport system of a huge amount of money getting a suspended sentence. But if you're a young kid in the aftermath of the riots, stealing a pair of trainers, you get the book thrown at you. So I really do think that race still plays a big part. It may be a smaller population here. Maybe that's the reason why it seems to be not such a big deal. But then you also have a different mix of ethnicities here. You have a huge Muslim Asian population who are also victims of injustice. And that might be a different mix, but it's still an issue here. And I just don't think you can say it's class. I do think that race and ethnicity does play a big part in it. Thanks. Just to contribute on the um, discussion about class here. Um, the tendency with a lot of academics and those on the left in the last maybe 20 or 30 years is to try and collapse race into class using most of the time Marxism. Here's a problem. Um, Marxism is a Eurocentric concept. Okay? Um, they weren't thinking about disenfranchised black people when they think about it in Europe. I'm talking about kind of Gramsci and other kind of scholars. How can we use class concepts such as Marxism as a way of understanding the experiences of the black working class when that experience is so qualitatively different from that of the white working class. Hello, thank you. Um, here's a, a picture for you. Why should I be optimistic? When I got to Sainsbury's this morning, I'm walking through trying to pick a sandwich up. The security guard follows me everywhere I go. I sit on the train. The white woman opposite me grabs hold of her bag. What, what am I supposed to do? When I get to the plane to get to the US, I find that I'm followed and searched a lot more than other people. When I get off the plane in the US, I'm a bit worried about what to do because the police are shooting everybody. There's a guy who runs the biggest, one of the biggest media companies in the world saying the president isn't actually black. Why should I be optimistic? I was just wondering if you thought that the, the uh, lack of actual prosecution of the um, police discrimination in the US is part of the issue, given that the um, policeman who shot Mike Brown um, was, on un, was on paid leave during his trial, but um, he then wasn't prosecuted in the slightest. Do you think that's part of the issue? We've only mentioned black men and boys that have been shot by the police, but black women have died in custody as well. Um, under similar circumstances. It's just interesting, a lot of the time in these debates, that isn't talked about. Um, and I think it's an important point that we remember and we acknowledge as well. I think Dr. Campbell uh, mentioned at the beginning um, the higher rates of imprisonment and um, arrest uh, and I, amongst uh, the black community. And I was just wondering, um, does that simply reflect... Um, the higher crime rate, whatever the social reasons for that are, or does it actually go beyond that? Yeah, I'd just like to ask um, what criticisms should be made of the Black Lives Matter movement? I can think of a lot. I've read some, um, what I think is very uh, thoughtful opinion from American guy, black American guy, John McWhorter, who's, um, while he a little, he's, he thinks that there is uh, some reason for some kind of movement, but he thinks that the way that the Black Lives Matter movement has been uh, run is actually part of the problem, and they're looking 
they're making, they're making the wrong uh, response. That actually policing um, ghetto areas is actually an impossibly hard job. And in a country like the United States with such a big population, uh, people are going to get killed. And um, to make, there's, more, there's, there's 25 times as many black people being killed um, that are not being talked about because it's just regular everyday killings by their neighbours. Um, yeah, my question is, um, do you think integration can be achieved with groups like the KKK and white pride movements hiding behind the constitutional right to free speech? Okay. The comment that this man made at the front row was, I think, very immature and I think it's actually one of the big problems. I feel like black people feel like they're being targeted, but they're not. I think you need to kind of look at the statistics and say, well... There's a lot of black people who do crime and do a lot of stuff, but also they've got that very provocative behaviour of saying, oh, I'm black, why, why is it me? Why are, you always, why are you always putting the finger on me? Why is it always me? You know, I, um, I think, you know, in my area, I live in South Norway, which is a very deprived area, a lot of, so quite a few crimes, and I think um, teenage stabbings have happened, and I'm not saying it's only black people, but every single stabbing that's happened in my area, which has been about you know, four in the last ten years have all been black people, and you think that, oh, that the police are targeting you when they think, when they look at you more and say, oh, is this black? Of course you're going to be wary if you know statistically that black people do maybe a bit more crime than other people, then that's, you know, you then don't be surprised that people, well, police are going to search you more, you know, look at you more. And I also think that this provocative behavior of rioting is just making it worse on black people. I mean, if you want to be perceived as someone who's calm and who's nice, then no, don't react in violence. I mean, lots of Muslims, Sikhs, myself, I, I get racism when I go back to my home country. My dad's Asian, my mom's white, I go to Eastern Europe. I get lots of racism, but you don't see me getting aggressive. I don't, you know, I just, I just kind of, you know, it's, I don't react like that. I mean, the reaction that I think black people have as a whole is just making it worse on themselves. Kevin talked a lot about integration as a potential solution, but not something that's been talked about enough in America. It's part of the issue that when white people talk about integration, it can be perceived as an attempt at assimilation, something much more negative than integration. I think that the comment that the man right from the um, front made was actually just wrong. Um, I think that um, institutional racism, it exists in the UK and it exists in the US and I think that we need to acknowledge that and the reason why these people are rioting and they're destroying their towns is because they face this racism through generations and they face this oppression and you need to acknowledge that. Okay. Um, just to follow on from the uh, previous comment, do you not think that the um, aggression that um, some black people have is justified from the treatment they've been um, receiving for years and years now? And also from a BBC Three programme that was um, done about racism, they had um, people uh, testing alarms in shops and three out of ten uh, attempts black people were stopped um, and when comparing to uh, Jewish people and also Muslims uh, who were not stopped at all. Uh, so there's a real kind of imbalance between, even between et ethnic groups that um, black people are targeted the most. So I just wanted to ask a question about what role the left has played historically in um, trying to address um, uh, questions of racism um, to the panel. Perhaps in contradistinction to the idea of, as the other speaker was mentioning, 
um, forms of identity politics where there's there's only the kind of idea that the people from a particular community can speak for that particular community. For me, that raises questions about who in, who defines that community and who is able to speak on behalf of them. And I wanted to sort of just ask about what the role a political left, if you think there's a political left anymore, um, can take. Um, that with regards to contribution to crime statistics, we have to um, remember about the over-policing of minority communities and how they are statistically way more policed than white um, communities. And as well, just to remember that uh, Martin Luther King wore suits and practiced non-violence and was still shot in the head. Um, I've I'm heard an interesting point that racism is like a kind of fear, like um, like you get like a large population where, like Ferguson, where it's a largely black population policed by a white population, you get like friction where like the police are quite afraid of the black population, the black population are quite afraid of the white policing population. And I was um, just saying that people are like, oh fuck the police, just where in reality it's just the police don't come across as racist, they come more across as scared of being assaulted or attacked and the black population are quite in a similar way. It often feels like with the reaction of people who are pushing for racial equality that mixed race people are being turned into a sort of product um, that they sort of need to churn out things like there's not enough mixed race couples. Um, and there's sort of statistics like you said there were 50% more black people are 50% more likely to marry a white woman in London. Um, the only thing I was just wondering is why that was. Um, but my main sort of point is um, it, would, it sounds good on paper having more mixed-race children because obviously they'll understand both cultures. But um, it's, I was kind of wondering how you would enforce that or maybe, I don't know, encourage, encourage more, <laughs> encourage more mixed-race couples when it's, it's sort of feelings instead of prejudices that you're dealing with. I was very struck by um, a couple of the comments uh, when people's responses to class, that it's a European construct uh, and perhaps we should dispense with this, as though there really is this notion that I've got a European mind, you've got an African mind and you've got a Latino mind. Somehow the experience of being uh, in Calcutta is so very different to being in uh, Dubai, London or Sydney or Sao Paulo. Actually, we have much more uh, that we share with one another, although we, we, we have things that separate us, and the things that separate us are, of course, things like income opportunities and opportunities in life, which sometimes uh, are, are, are obviously in certain areas impacted by the colour of our skins. It does strike me that we need to have a common purpose. Uh, you know, uh, in terms of the issue of trust, it's one of the major issues that's facing us uh, across the world. We don't trust each other. We don't trust anyone else. The authorities don't even trust the police. The police don't trust the citizens. Uh, and no one trusts one another. The citizens don't trust one another. We need to come up with a new language about perhaps in those great ideas that were like the wheel. It didn't come from Europe, but we all seized it and used it. We can, we can seize the ideas of the Enlightenment, the ideas of common citizens that believe in freedom and equality together, that believe in universal justice and rights, and dispense with the idea that there's something particular about being me from being bang from Bangalore town 
or you from being uh, in an estate in Peckham that's because you're uh, Caribbean or white. And so we have much more in common with one another. And it seems to me that that would be the first step. It's a massive challenge, the discussion of integration in America. But uh, rather than repeating the old adages, surely uh, uh, something good that we could uh, suggest to our fellow Americans is uh, a bit more solidarity, a very unfashionable term today, and a sense of common purpose as citizens so that they could all work and participate together. I just want to pick up on police fear and also on the Second Amendment. I was wondering whether you had any um, social commentary on uh, Bowling for Columbine. They had a, a short um, comic on there, and it basically was to do with um, you know, police fear and uh, the right to own a gun. Sorry, I'm going to have to bring the panel back in now. Kunli, why don't you go first, and we'll know how much time we have left. Um, I think there's an issue that needs to be kind of um, lanced here, and that's um, either-or. It's either class or it's either race. These are tactical questions. They're also issues of um, organisation and political principle. Um, for those of you that don't know, this weekend is also the 70th anniversary of the uh, Manchester Pan-African Con- uh, uh, Conference, a conference that was first initiated by W.E. Du Bois, who stated that the issue of the 20th century would be the issue of the colour line. But in taking that forward, the issue of class was also instrumental in the thoughts of many of those people that organised those Pan-African Congresses and, and provided us with the people like C.L.R. James, and uh, I think that the question of, and let's get back to it, is if we were looking at is America, if we want to talk about Britain, I think maybe that's a separate discussion. An interesting one, but a separate one. The question is, in a situation where you can see that both the um, engines of race is not enough, actually, to hold people together, or the question of class, how do we come forward with new organisation? Um, I don't have ready solutions for that here today, but I will say that you know I organise black organisations. I don't have a problem with that, and I don't have a problem with talking about class either. So I think some of you re- need to go away and have a think about that in terms of the intersection between race and class and how that works itself out, because I think it's really important that this generation actually understands that. I will just say that the issue of Obama... Um, like many people in 2008, and I was at the, um, I think it was the British Museum, talking about the uh, impending election of a black president. As far as I was concerned, it's a completely um, progressive and brilliant thing to happen. And I know that not just black people, but many white people actually uh, in, uh, shared in the joy of seeing Obama elected. Uh, but I'm long enough in the tooth, politically, to know that he was not the answer and that the problems that he was confronted with in coming as a, uh, a president were huge. You know, uh, three, three wars, an economy going down the, the tubes, there was no way that he could have resolved all those problems. But nevertheless, it gave us an indication of the possibility of America being able to renew itself and being able to challenge some of the orthodoxies that have been set by the past. And for me, that's a positive thing. Um, what's happened since, I think... You know, it's been a bit of a disaster. He's turned into oatmeal man. Um, at the end of the day, I think that the, the money men have got what they wanted out of Obama. But um, the legacy that he leaves behind, for me, is about the possibility of change and the possibility of America to actually change. In terms of the question of assimilation, I think it's right that the question of integration uh, for black people has often been discussed in terms of uh, assimilation. Um, 
And I would say this, you know, if you want assimilation, on whose terms? Think about it. Okay, James. Okay, thanks. I'm going to turn to some of the more specific questions about aspects of American um, criminal justice, I think, here. Um, there was a specific, very specific question asked about um, high rates of arrest in black communities. Um, all the evidence shows they very much are linked to patterns of um, policing, um, as well as rates of crime. And if you go through the Department of Justice reports that have come out into Ferguson, they have reams and reams of examples um, of that. Um, and just with regards to class as well, um, examples of um, very much middle class African Americans being targeted by the police in ways that would be um, certainly on the scale that this occurs, un- unthinkable in, in white communities. Um, there was um, a question um, about uh, where else have we got? about solutions and reasons to be op- reasons to be optimistic. I'm not sure I've got much to add on this, except to say that I think we need to take note of the, the great diversity across the US. I think in terms of law enforcement, I think particularly looking at it from a UK perspective, we need to remember that just the, the sheer number of different law enforcement agencies. That, that exist across America, there is not only one picture. Um, Black Lives Matter has gone out of its way to, to note examples where many of their proposals for change have already been adopted by, by many police forces. Um, that also pre- presents a, a real challenge. Um, Kunle highlighted right at the start the contrast between developments in the LAPD uh, and the Ferguson Police Department. Um, it's, it's hard to bring about change across the board. And we see that in the, the, the simple the lack of statistics we have about um, police violence. That's something that the Department of Justice is supposed to, to keep track of um, under legislation passed in the 1990s. But it doesn't, partly because there are 18,000 different law enforcement agencies it's supposed to be engaging with. But even beyond that, there's not even something as simple as a single form or a single um, set of criteria against which to try and record data on this issue. So even um, acknowledging or, or finding out about the scale of the problem proves very difficult because of the, very, the highly localised nature um, of American law enforcement. Um, one other point about the role of the left, which was asked about historically in, in regards to um, issues of civil rights and I think more generally engagement with these issues of prison punishment um, and policing. I think the, the left and um, Marxist organisations in the US have often played quite a radicalising role. There are, are cases where they've pushed um, civil rights organisations such as the National um, Association for the Advancement of Coloured People to engage you know, in much more radical ways with issues of crime and punishment than they were initially comfortable with doing. Um, the Scottsboro case in the 1930s is one example of that. Um, nine uh, young boys, one as, long, one as young as 12, um, charged with uh, raping two white women on board a train in Alabama. It was um, a, a Marxist organisation that first wanted to represent that group. The NAACP was very wary of getting involved in the case because of potential bad publicity. So there, there is certainly, um, <coughs> this might, the, the, these things might not always shift in the ways you perhaps um, expect. I should probably stop there looking at Yeah, no, thank you. Kevin? Okay, I'll have to just ignore quite a few questions. I'm sorry about that. It's just there's so many, which is a good discussion, makes a good discussion. But he's here all weekend. <laughs> um, First of all, on guns, Second Amendment, I think that's a very interesting discussion. I can't resist that one. Uh, Mostly because I think if you look at the history of gun control, it's often began against African Americans. It was a disempowering um, event that happened, particularly in Reconstruction, when they couldn't just specifically say, only African Americans can't have guns anymore. After the 14th Amendment, that became impossible. So they passed gun controls, basically to take guns away 
from African Americans. And what's interesting about the left is that uh, liberals in the left protested against gun controls at this particular stage of history, and it's only changed really in the last uh, 50 years. Even as, as recently as the 1960s, the Black Panthers campaign, their very first campaign, was against gun controls because they said, you're just trying to take guns away from black people. So I think that's a, that, that sheds an interesting light on things. Uh, second, interesting question about marriage. Um, marriage, I think, reflects in some ways status. So people marry uh, what they see as uh, a, a high status person. This is sort of the, you know, for instance, why are posh white women the most desirable because they are the greatest status symbol in some ways. And this is, the, even if we don't like it, that's the way uh, that marriage tends to work. And I think that reflects some of the, um, the sort of ways, the reasons why people marry at, at very different rates. And I think that's worth thinking about. Very to, to finish on, though, I think, what are the solutions and why should I be optimistic? I am, and I remain optimistic. I do think that integration is entirely impossible. I do think that it's, it's the best possible thing. I'm not sure about assimilation, but integration, uh, so that we're not paying attention to the races of people. I think Martin Luther King's dream is absolutely right, and I, I think it is still possible in the United States, and probably more possible in the United States. I continue to have great hope in the United States, more possible there uh, than almost any place else as well. It's a great dynamic country, and the people... Uh, you know, I think we should trust the people to do this. I, I do think the very first thing, though, is to recognize that uh, things have been going rather backwards since the 1960s. It's when you have that rejection of integration as a goal, when you have that rejection of, of you know, look at the 1960s. I, I'm a historian of that period of time, but if I am ever feeling very depressed, I look at what people were calling for in the 1960s, the so-called impossible goals, and they went for it 100%. And to a large extent, they achieved many of the goals that they were setting. It didn't end, and the real problem came in the 1970s when they gave up. That's, that's the whole... I've just told you my whole book, so now you don't have to buy it. Uh, Nixon just gave up on, on uh, racial reform, and it was that sort of backward step that was taken at that stage that I think is the real problem. And once we realize uh, that we can achieve these kind of goals and, and stop this sort of limited imagination, then I think it's possible. Okay, so I want to thank you all for coming. Obviously, this is a debate that will uh, go on and on and on, and hopefully people will continue to discuss it over the weekend. And if you could just join me in thanking all of our speakers. <laughs>